Welcome to the Sustainable Nano Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Krauss, and on today's episode, we are talking about art and science and why artists and scientists should talk to each other, and a particularly cool project that's going on at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, involving one of our Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology faculty members, Kathy Murphy. So we've got an interview with Kathy, and you're going to hear a little bit about her research in gold nanoparticles and, uh, and this collaboration she's got with artists on campus and some of the really cool artwork that has come out of that collaboration. We've also got some housekeeping news to share. After the winter break holiday, we're going to be moving our podcast to a new location, and I'll say more about that at the end of the episode. But first, here is the interview with Dr. Kathy Murphy. Thank you so much for joining us for the Sustainable Nano Podcast. Do you want to introduce yourself briefly? Sure. I'm uh, Kathy Murphy. I'm a professor of chemistry at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I've been there since 2009, uh, but actually I was a student there back in the mid-80s. So it's like when I moved back there, it's like going home. (laughs) So you're part of the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, obviously, Mm -hmm. is partly why we're talking. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the purposes of this podcast Mm -hmm. is to kind of connect Mm -hmm. between scientists and the public, people who don't identify themselves as scientists, but still care about science Mm -hmm. and want to learn about it. So I was really curious to hear about this project, the collaboration you've got going on with artists at the Mm -hmm. University of Illinois. So Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about what that is Mm -hmm. and how it got started? Sure. Um, It started, the whole thing started actually way back in about 2006 uh, when I was on the faculty at the University of South Carolina. And at South Carolina, I had a collaboration uh, on sort of bio-nanotechnology with a cell biologist, a mechanical engineer, and me, the chemist. So we were all women faculty there. And uh, our mechanical engineering colleague was uh, dating an art professor. Nice. <laughs> so we were tra- so they were trying to think of ways they could interact professionally as well as personally. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, we started this program then called the, uh, we called it the Participant Observer Program. And the idea was that people from the art side of that world, originally in its original conception, it was more like a joint group meeting thing. Right. So uh, the scientists would have to explain their work to an audience that consisted of artists and writers and so forth. And then the artists and writers and so forth would have to explain what they were doing to a bunch of scientists. So that's how it started. Um, but then over time, it evolved a little bit to be more uh, sort of observing things in the lab. It was a really neat experience, I thought, because the students in my lab, anyway, got much better at explaining things to intelligent people who were not scientists because of this. So uh, when I moved to Illinois in 2009, I sort of took this idea with me. And uh, so in my own lab, we have this participant observer program. And so what we do is uh, in the fall semester every year, uh, we have a little competition. So I met with the dean of the College of Fine and Applied Arts at Illinois and explained this whole project uh, to them where I wanted undergraduates who were majoring in their disciplines to shadow students in my lab, but not do any science, you know, mm-hmm. just sort of observe the science, ask a lot of questions. And then, uh, and then at the end of the term, uh, their students would then produce some work of art, you know, a piece of music, a poem, uh, a dance, whatever, whatever it would be. And uh, they were very enthusiastic because, uh, you know, the arts are, are do happen at Illinois, but you always much hear more about science and engineering, and they're, they're not in the same part of campus and all this stuff. So anyway, the College of Fine and Applied Arts had a staff person who helped me, so she collected uh, um, applications from students in the College of Fine and Applied Arts, and then she and I would go over the finalists together, mm-hmm. and we would pick two to four people. 
So we do all this uh, selection in the fall, and then in the spring semester, that's when the students come to the lab. And so I pair them up with one of my own grad students, depending on their interests. So for example, one of the students we had in the center who graduated, Ariane Bartanian, Mm -hmm. she had an interest in cinema and film studies as an undergraduate herself, and uh, I paired her up with a filmmaker. Nice. <laughs> so, uh, so anyways, and what what happened over the course of the semester is the these and I wanted I wanted to be fun for people, right? right? So it shouldn't be a burden. So the art students would show up maybe you know an hour a week, two hours a week, and they'd follow my students around as they made particles, or as they went to the electron microscopy center, or as they did some cell studies and so forth. And so at the end of the term, then in our group meeting, we would hear from them what they had done. We had some jewelry makers bring their jewelry. We had a musician uh, play his piece for us at our group meeting. And then we have gone to uh, some of the architecture students. We went to their senior design exhibits. Uh, The poets, we went to their poetry reading. The musicians, we went to their musical performances. So it's just, it doesn't take too much time, and it doesn't cost too much money, uh, but you get a lot of benefit. And uh, and the students have kept in touch with us sometimes, and they've kept in touch with their mentors. That's great. And I've written letters of recommendation for some of these art students who go on to MFA programs. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a pretty unusual letter to get, right, from a chemistry professor talking about nanotechnology <laughs> <laughs> and how these students have kind of enriched our experience. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your science, just what you, what oh, do you sure. do with the, sure. the center? So my lab is most known for making uh, gold nanoparticles of controlled size and shape. Uh, when you control their size and shape, you control their optical properties uh, and other properties. And so this has all kinds of implications that are pretty interesting for chemical sensing, biological imaging. Um, and we're also finding that the presence of nanoparticles around living cells affects their behavior. I mean, the cell behavior, which mm-hmm. is pretty interesting. So uh, as part of the center, we're looking at uh, nanoparticle-lipid interactions. Lipids are the main molecules in cell membranes. That's thought to be the first, you know, point of attack mm-hmm. of a particle on a cell. Uh, anyway, for uh, uh, for some of the bioimaging stuff we're doing, it turns out gold can actually enhance the properties of other materials that do do things like quantum dots. Mm. So we're making these complex structures where we can put gold in the middle and then some of these uh, more other uh, interesting materials on the outside, and then we shine light on the gold, which then interacts with the stuff on the outside, and then we can actually get all kinds of light out of different wavelengths. Hmm. So for the gold particles themselves, the, the wavelengths of light they scatter uh, totally depends on their size and shape. Mm-hmm. So you can tune that to some extent, but uh, having these other surface coatings on it makes you uh, have more opportunities for mm-hmm. different wavelengths of light. So what are we talking about here when we talk about gold? Mm-hmm. Like my mental image mm-hmm. is like, you know, Fort Knox bars of gold. Oh. That are like obviously, <laughs> yeah. you know, mm-hmm. huge amounts right. mm-hmm. compared mm-hmm. to what you do. But but just to give mm-hmm. us a sense of what how, how much mm-hmm. gold are we talking here? Mm-hmm. Ah. <laughs> so the neat thing about gold is that when you shrink the grain size down to the nanoscale, you get all these changes in, in properties. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for example... Um, if you take gold and uh, beat it with a hammer, okay, to make gold foil, the mm-hmm. foil still looks like gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can actually, with a hammer, you can beat it thin enough to be at about a micrometer thick. Wow. Um, so that's like a thousand nanometers thick, and it still looks gold. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if you were to take that thin gold foil and throw it into a vat of molten glass and make to make stained glass, uh, what you would have observed, and actually people have observed this hundreds of years ago, that the gold foil disperses in the clear molten glass to give you this ruby red color. So uh, in the medieval times, this was called a red gold as a pigment. So even then, people knew that finely divided metal was somehow different from uh, bulk metal. Mm -hmm. So basically, that's the kind of thing we do, except we don't take a bunch of, you know, 
solid gold and beat it down. Okay, we go from the bottom up, so we'll take a gold salt and chemically reduce it with a reducing agent to make little gold particles that have these same ruby red colors. So the, the ruby red color is what you get when you get spheres in a certain size range. And then if we, we make all the other shapes, and so these other shapes give you blue, green, brown, you know, all kinds of colors. Great. So um, coming back to the the art collaboration, are mm-hmm. there um, the one or two projects that, that come to mind as being really great examples of of something or something that was really meaningful for you that you can tell us a little more detail? Sure. So uh, one of the artists we uh, uh, had was a painter, and uh, she, she she actually got interested in our waste in the back of the hood. Huh. Because we would have, you know, a beaker of waste in the back of the hood evaporating, so it would concentrate it down, and, and it would crystallize some of these things. And she said, oh, what are those beautiful crystals? And we said, oh, they're waste. <laughs> and she got really interested in this concept that something that is waste can actually be beautiful. Mm-hmm. So she ended up painting some of her work with that kind of idea in mind. Like She also liked looking at our uh, cell experiments where we look through microscopes. Some of the cells would be... You know, they'd be dying and some would be alive, and you could tell by looking at them what was going to happen. So she had her interest in this. So she did a series of paintings on this kind of theme of waste and death, but somehow it looks beautiful. Yeah. And also, uh, she was very interested, as I am too, in how natural objects look like abstract art in some ways, mm-hmm. and sometimes abstract art looks like a natural object, mm-hmm. <laughs> like Georgia O'Keeffe's paintings, which I love. You know, yeah. it's a painting of a flower, but it's so close up. It, you know, it looks like in the inside of a cell maybe or something yeah, if you're yeah. used to looking at those kinds of things. So anyway, one of her paintings uh, I bought from her, one of her shows, and it's in her lab. <laughs> and it's uh, one of these ones that's kind of inspired by crystallization. So that was neat. Um, we also had, we've had a couple of musicians go through the group, and they have been very interested in the, these uh, frequencies of light that are absorbed mm-hmm. by particles because it looks like sine waves, which looks like music when you put, you know, you play music and put it through some kind of oscillator, mm-hmm. you know, oscilloscope thing. So uh, they got very interested in how you can tune things with the size and shape of your material mm-hmm. in, in a kind of way like this. So uh, my students and I have been to several musical concerts where um, one guy was a trombone player, hmm. and so he wrote a piece with his little quartet uh, called Plasmon Band. And that's, uh, so he actually said that as he you know, announced the piece to his audience, and I'm sure me and my students were the only ones who knew what he was talking about. <laughs> So uh, so that was that's been really fun, yeah. and we had some dancers last year who uh, did a dance performance based on uh, things, but I wasn't able to go. Mm. Yeah, to me, that dance is such the I guess the most abstract because it's not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I admire that the connections that the dancers mm-hmm. can make between a visual or, mm-hmm. or a process or something, and then this totally different medium. But we actually um, the connection between sound and nanoscale stuff makes a lot of intuitive mm-hmm. sense to me and in fact mm-hmm. when I have a podcast episode where I talk to our center director Bob about uh, why glaciers look blue yeah and it has mm-hmm. to do with that that wavelength of light mm-hmm. that um, and it's not mm-hmm. the same as like your normal kind of uh, you know scattering why the right, sky yeah, is yeah. blue mm-hmm. or why mm-hmm. water looks blue the mm-hmm. analogy of the um, the harmonics mm-hmm. where yep. you have mm-hmm. in music you have like a fundamental frequency and then harmonics oh, right. kind of mm-hmm. make the sound sound richer right that's right and then mm-hmm. the same with visual if you've got white light but then you've got so mm-hmm. some fundamental frequency that's maybe outside the visible mm-hmm. spectrum yeah that's but right then the mm-hmm. harmonics are within the visible 
Now, there's a lot of analogies between science and music, mm-hmm. and uh, you might remember that uh, Franz Geiger in our center does second harmonic generation <laughs> uh, spectroscopy, and so it's a similar kind of thing. You're looking at sort of overtones, you know, from a fundamental as giving you information about your sample. Mm-hmm. But of course, when you're playing a piece of music on a real instrument as opposed to a computer thing, uh, you know, it sounds much richer sometimes mm-hmm. because of all these overtones and harmonics. Exactly, yeah. So, of course, you know, we're, we're kind of having this conversation, you know, our Sustainable mm-hmm. Nano is uh, unabashedly pro-science art mm-hmm. collaboration. We had mm-hmm. a whole episode about the Generation Nano superhero mm-hmm. contest with high mm-hmm. school students. Mm-hmm. But it's worth talking about, I think, like, why do we have this assumption that scientists and artists should talk to each other and should be working together what do you what do you feel like kind of we get out of this um both on individual scale but like more philosophically Mm -hmm. too well i think the first thing is communication so being able to explain what you're doing to people who are not experts in your field i think is just a generally valuable thing no matter what you do in the future you're probably going to have to do that (laughs) right (laughs) you know explaining what you're doing to your boss or the board of of directors or uh to um, a science writer or whatever Mm -hmm. right so it's a good skill to have and uh, for the scientists the more you talk about your stuff the more you start to realize things about it and the other thing that's happened again with my students talking to these art students is that the art students will say oh why do you do something that way and then the chemistry students will be like oh because we've always done it that way but then (laughs) Hmm, why do we do it this way? So every once in a while we find out a, like a little better way to do our science because someone has just, you know, very basic questions about the process or the measurement or how do we know this or why do we assume that? So it makes you think a little more, because once you're, you know, digging around in the weeds doing very detailed experiments, sometimes it's easy to not ever look up and look at the larger landscape to see why, you know, why are we doing something? And the, sometimes the art students have very good questions like, well, what about, you know, why don't you do this kind of experiment? And then the answer might be, oh, yeah, well, why don't we do this kind of experiment? Maybe we should. So, uh, so we're very open to um, trying to make our uh, experience a lot more deep and rich. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and having people who are not, uh, you know, in our little tribe actually helps us do that, I think. Mm-hmm. And obviously the artists are getting great inspiration and, you know, new ideas. Yeah, they would, there's things they would never normally do. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, sometimes we find that the artists have a lot more in common with us than we realize. Like the painters, for example, have to worry a lot about waste disposal and, you know, that kind of thing, which was not obvious to me at, mm-hmm. fir- at first. And then uh, the people that do metals, so apparently, I didn't know this, but at Illinois you can major in metals. Which I'm like, really? You can yeah. major in metals? <laughs> but that's in the art department, uh-huh. <laughs> studio art department. And so, yeah, there's people that do metal work there. And they think a lot about alloys and colors and mixing. And I'm like, I mean, it totally stuff that chemists think about when we think about making materials out of metals. Mm-hmm. And the architects think a lot about structure. And, of course, mm-hmm. chemists who do synthesis of molecules think a lot about building up a molecule atom by atom. And you think about the angles and the bond strengths and so forth. And the architects, when they build mm-hmm. an object, they think about exactly the same kind of thing, the angles and the structures and you know, the strength of the materials and so forth. So there's a lot more crosstalk and maybe not enough, though. Uh, so I think if we uh, if we went back and forth even more, we'd uh, start to appreciate more uh, each other's areas and then draw inspiration from each other's areas to enable even better science or art. Mm-hmm. Let's see, any any other things you think we should talk about on the topic of? I have one other thing I can tell you that's kind of avant-garde oh, please. that we're doing in the lab. So, so this art professor that I mentioned, so he's a guy that does art himself, but mm-hmm. he's also interested in science. Mm-hmm. His name is Chris Robinson, and he's at the University of South Carolina. So he contacted me to say he got involved with a project at Carnegie Mellon, and uh, so there's going to be another mission to the moon, apparently, in 20, no, 2017, I guess now. Huh. 
And uh, so they're going to put all these instruments on the mission to measure stuff about the moon. But another thing they're going to put on is an art exhibit. So they're going to put an art exhibit on the moon. So he had, And he remembered that we make all these beautifully colored samples of nanoparticles. And he said, uh, hey, how would you like to be part of an art installation on the moon? That's so cool. So I said, of course, yes. So, uh, we sent, so we made a bunch of our usual samples and sent them to him. And he said, well, these are in water, right? And I said, yes. He's like, okay, <laughs> okay, it's got to go through space and then be on the moon. So that's not going to work. And I said, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. So, uh, so anyway, we immobilized our samples in a uh, silica gel. So it looks like, ah. it looks like glass. So kind of like the stained glass windows. Right. We have all these little samples. So we made three sets, uh, one for us, one for him, and one for the moon mission. Anyway, but if all goes well, our particles will then be on the moon next year. That is so cool. <laughs> so this is obviously, this is a, not a crewed mission to the moon. This is, un, like, no humans involved. Right, right, right. Just a, just instrumentation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Well, we will definitely follow up uh, on that story mm-hmm. when we know more about CSN nanoparticles mm-hmm. on the moon. So, mm-hmm. fantastic. Well, that's probably about out of time. So, but thank you so much for oh yeah taking the time to talk. Appreciate it. And that's our episode for this week. Thanks so much to Dr. Kathy Murphy for doing the interview with me. Uh, we had a really interesting side conversation about the rainbow of colors and gold nanoparticles and, and how that phenomenon happens. And we're probably actually going to turn that into a whole separate podcast episode. So stay tuned for that. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we are moving the location of our podcast very soon. We're going to try to do this with minimal disruption to any of our listeners. There's a slight chance that if you are an iTunes subscriber, you might have to resubscribe to the podcast next month. Uh, but never fear. There are lots of ways to find us and keep track of what's going on, from our blog at sustainable-nano.com to Twitter and Facebook, where we're Sustainable Nano with no dash. We'll make sure that we are posting podcast updates on all those places, of course, along with our usual news and fun information on sustainability and nanotechnology. So do please reach out to us and uh, let us know what you think and what you want to hear on the podcast in the future. Last but not least, I want to thank the National Science Foundation for funding for the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which produces this podcast. We're so grateful for the opportunity. Always important to give our disclaimer, all the opinions and views expressed on the podcast are those of the speakers and not of the National Science Foundation. Happy holidays to all of you listeners. Thank you so much for listening to Sustainable Nano. We'll see you for our next episode after the winter break. 